Are you tired of hearing about politics? Perhaps four years of Donald Trump simply has you worn down. Well, if that's the case, then do I have news for you. Introducing today the Sleepy Joe Blanket and Bedding Set. That's right. You can celebrate the next four years wrapped in the comforting embrace of neoliberal centrism. Come on, man. You know it's what's going to bring that bedroom set together for you. Sleepy Joe Blanket Set. It's like a long hug from that uncle your parents don't let you spend weekends with. Views expressed in this ad do not reflect the Biden campaign. This is not co-signed or affiliated with the Biden campaign in any way. These items are not available in store or online. This, in fact, is a placeholder ad for Against the Mob podcast. back everybody logan carpenter matthew billingsley here again another episode of against the mob uh today we want to take a little bit of a step back i think we've both been a little bit cognizant of the thought that we tend to get in our libertarian inertia and language uh industry jargon as it would be uh, and sometimes maybe we say things that don't make a lot of sense to somebody who hasn't heard and read all the same things we have um so specifically today we're going to take a, t- a small step back and address the state what the state is, what the state is not, how it relates to us in everyday life, uh, how it influences us, and uh, just what in general you need to be aware of when you're thinking of the state apparatus and its influence on your life. Yeah. Um, before we get going, though, I want to take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, first and foremost, thank you to everybody that has actually listened. Logan and I were talking about this um, prior to the show, and we were hoping that if like maybe five people listen to each podcast, we were going to be pumped. We have had over 55 listeners um, between the two episodes, and that's not a lot um, in the grand scheme of things, but it is a tremendous amount to us. So overwhelming gratitude um, to everybody that has given us a shot, and I hope that we keep producing content that is on point um, that keeps you guys coming back. The second thing I would like, um, this to be a two-way street, right? We're dedicated to producing content, but... We're going to ask something of you guys. At the very least, please like, subscribe, and share with just one person. If you want to share with 50 people, that's great. But if you can find one person in your life that you think might actually enjoy this, please share. Right now, as we're getting this going, it's going to be absolutely monumental for us to be able to double our listeners um, because that's going to, you know, and this is the most achievable time to actually make those doubling uh, moves. So, Again, please like, subscribe, share with just one person and spread the word about us because Logan and I one day would love to just be full-time podcasters. The last thing, we are going to be bringing on a special guest next week to talk about uh, COVID economics and the greater impact of the uh, pandemic. We uh, originally had that idea basically to do uh, an economics episode. Uh, and then Matthew brought up this PhD professor he knows and and I thought, you know, it's probably a good idea for us to bring somebody in who truly understands economics before we start just throwing our libertarian uh, ideas against the wall and seeing what sticks. Yep, absolutely.
the very, very last thing I have is I'm working on a website. Um, it's uh, slow motion is better than no motion. And we will get that up. And once we do, we will have a solid single platform to direct everybody to and then direct everybody out from. We're, we'll link all of the different platforms and yada, yada. Okay, with that being said, let's hop into it. I wanted to start with what the state is not because sometimes defining what something isn't is a really good way to start to put barriers around what something is. And the state is not us and we are not the state. There is a clear separation between the citizens and the state apparatus of this country. Right. And I want to point out, too, that we're drawing a lot of these ideas from some of the source material. We decided to to move back into the libertarian realms. And one of these books that comes up a lot and maybe political pamphlets more accurate is Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbart. Um, this is chapter one of his book. In fact, what is the state is not. Um, and I think a, a great example of this, you got to realize uh, there's this bad tendency of us to have this myth that the state is us, that the state is we we're making the decisions, especially in a democracy. Uh, because we have these ideas that we're the ones who elect these officials and they're there to represent us. Um, and there are varying mm -hmm. degrees of that. We've all seen the, the corruption within it, but at least the basic tenant of democracy or a republic is that you are putting somebody in power that's going to be making these systems in this oligarchical class that at least has your best interest in mind. Um, and I like to point out just some ideas that to, if you have these disillusions of, of you being part of the state, us, we are the state, the state is us, uh, there's plenty of examples of it. Think about if you're a more left-leaning individual, reproductive rights, uh, gay marriage for a long time is illegal in this country. Now we're moving into the, the rights of trans people. Um, and once upon a time, it used to be really against uh, anti-war propaganda. I wish we had a stronger left anti-war movement now. Um, but these are things that we're seeing as, as if you were uh, a lefty or, or um, like Matthew or I growing up in a conservative area and seeing us march to war in the Middle East, you're going, this isn't my decision. This isn't what I want for this country, uh, especially after five years in nine, uh, from 9-11, where perhaps you did feel a, a conviction to go to the Middle East and correct this terrorist attack that happened to us. But then you see five countries you go into, none of which had anything to do with that. And it's kind of like, hmm, I wonder why we're, uh, we're doing this. It doesn't seem like exactly how I would have implemented this. And the same goes for the other side. If you're on the right, I mean, just think of the tax revenue that gets siphoned up and it goes to all these large blue metropolis that most of you would agree, disagree with. Um, along with any other social programs you see in this country, whether it's the welfare state, uh, the state of immigration, giving uh, welfare to people you wouldn't think would necessarily deserve it, um, and just driving up the debt ceiling of this country. There's a lot of things that the state has done, um, and you don't have to look back 20, 30 years to find it. Just look back to the last president you disagreed with, and if you're really digging deep into it, you can probably look at the last president you voted for, and he probably did some of this stuff as well. Right, absolutely. And just to just to expand on that idea from last episode that um, it's myths that create powerful groups. The state uses the we language to create that very, very cohesive illusion. And it reinforces the myth that we are one, right? And it's probably the most permeated myth of all time, probably either e even greater than religion. Because in 21st century America, there's lots of many gods to believe in. Um, a lot of people don't even believe in a God, but almost everybody that I talk to believes in the state and the state has done a really good job at convincing you of its legitimate purpose in our lives. So almost all regard the state as a necessary means for achieving the goals of mankind. And that's a quote from Rothbard. And the problem with that is that there's other ways, one, that there's other ways to actually organize societies, but two, if you give the state this 
higher pedestal standing, that the only way for us to actually progress liberties and freedom is through the state, then I think that we've, uh, we've created a, a fatal error in our thinking. Right. And you see a lot of this. I mean, anytime you've uh, had this necessity for us to go save the Houthis or the, the Shiites, um, and we, we have these, these massive things that America needs to do to spread democracy and freedom around the world. Um, and we go over to, to countries to fight these terrorist groups. And, and sometimes we end up funding that exact same terrorist group five years later to fight another terrorist group. Um, the idea that we're supposed to be the world police and that we know the, what is great for everybody it, it's one of those things we got to be critical of it. You cannot just take it at face value and believe that your state's doing the right thing because that's when the, the worst things happen. If you close a blind eye to it and assume the best is going to happen, then there's the check and balance system's gone as, as thin as it may have been to begin. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, to really point out that the strides in personal freedoms and liberties throughout history has come from removing government and not giving it more power. And Thomas Reed has a great quote, and it says, quote, um, one of the greatest delusions in the world is that the hope is the hope that the evils in this world are to be cured by legislation. And we see that all the time, right? You want to talk about Jim Crow laws, civil rights, um, the American independence, any of these great movements of history, it is getting government out of the way. It is not giving government any more control. And I think that that's a really good segue to what... Um, Let's talk about like the, the COVID stimulus and the myths behind it. And the permeating myth with this COVID stimulus that I am just so opposed to on so many different levels, and I know Logan is too, and I think that a lot of people would if they took the time to understand it, and maybe hopefully we can break some of these ideas down to, in a more easily digestible form so you guys can come along this hate journey with us. But the myth that this is for the people but only 200 billion, you know, give or take some billions, go to the America, go to the American people, while the rest is tied up in government spending, foreign aid, and a ton of policies that, if I was to lay them out, that you and I really don't care about. Right, and there's a lot of things in there that are not the worst thing in the world, and there's a lot of arguments I've seen that hey, people don't really understand. You're getting a $600 check, yes, that doesn't seem like a lot, but it's also going to enriching these government programs. It's going into all of these things that are going to help kickstart our economy and get things going again. Um, the fallacy I think with that a lot of times is that that's when you see a lot of this corruption rear its ugly head. Uh, this money, if you really track it all down, it's not all empirically going to things that are creating jobs for Americans. It's going to go to industries like the airline industry. Uh, they didn't seem to have any problem laying people off after they got their last stimulus check. You know, it's not like they maintained and, and, and kept the, uh, the industry going and kept Americans employed. Um, it was just something that, that got them by, that allowed them to get through. And I think that's a grotesque thing, too, that we want to make a point of is, is when you have these big lobbyist systems like this, what you end up seeing is they've got government in their pocket enough that they're not worried about operating like any sane business does. They're perfectly fine going over their overhead, going into a risky area where they know if they have a bad quarter, they're going to go bankrupt. Because on the back end of this, the state's going to clean it up for them anyway. Right. It's a it's a government insurance policy that can mm -hmm. only be bought through the uh, perverse lobbying system that really exists in 21st century American politics. So I want to take an example and um, bear with me and follow me down this journey of why we are not the state. So Rothbard and I quote him, if we are the government, then anything a government does to an individual is not only just and untyrannical, but also voluntary, 
on the part of the individual concerned. And so if you take that idea to its logical progression, you come to a place where Jews weren't murdered by the Nazi state. They simply committed suicide. And that is absolutely absurd. But I like that example because it shows the flaw in the logic that we are the state. So now with that extreme example, I want well, to I do want to say real quick, I, okay. I think that that's something that's important in the libertarian realms and something that you hear libertarians talk on a lot is logical consistency with our ideology. And it's something that gets me a lot of times where you'll have people who will argue a different ideology. And then when you come up with an example like this, if you say, okay, well, you think that say it's communism or socialism and we control the means of production and the government is us and something like this happens in a socialist society. And then you go, well, either that wasn't real socialism or that wasn't a good example. It's something uh, material, but the truth of it is it still happened under this set of rules. Now you can't decide to change that set of rule when it presses up against something atrocious because it's too late at that point. You've already started following this rule set. And I think that's something that we really lean on as libertarians. That we have a, a ideology here that is consistent. It does not change. It does not waver. There are some gray areas, of course, as there is with anything. It's not that Absolutely. we have all the exact answers and have it all hammered down. But for the most part, we believe in non-government intervention, the NAP, uh, non-aggression principle. I should say that out loud rather than using my acronym like I just uh, started the episode saying we we're doing too much of um, anti-fraud uh, and property rights. And outside of that, you don't have much else going on. You don't have a lot of government interference. Um, but one of those major tenets is that we're not the government. And and if you're going to be in any kind of system where you would say, no, I disagree with that, we are the government. The government is of the people, by the people, and for the people. Then you need to be able to, to sit there and say that every decision that government makes is, in fact, a decision the citizens have co-signed. Sorry, my dog was barking. <laughs> um, so just to uh, bring in some real-world examples of how we are not the state, 2020 has given us more than enough. And government has showed you the true separation between us and them through this pandemic. Congress has been paid this entire time. Governors have retained their salaries while forcing tyranny upon people in the name of public safety, forcing businesses to close their doors, robbing you of your dignity of life to go to work and provide a life for yourself. And if that is not a clear example of how we are not in this together and how the citizens are not the state and the state is not the citizens, then I don't know really what, what else will drive that home. Yeah, it's the, uh, and I'm sure you've already mentioned this in one of our episodes, but rules for thee, but not for me. I mean, this is, uh, this is Nancy Pelosi condemning anybody who's not wearing a mask, but going to a uh, place to get her fingernail done with no mask on. Uh, I don't even know if she had shoes on in that picture. Um, or Cuomo shutting down Thanksgiving, telling you you're not even allowed to sing at Thanksgiving because it's too much of a risk. When he has a couple hundred people over to his uh, Thanksgiving shindig at his house, uh, I think he had another large Christmas shindig again that he got in trouble for. Um, and by trouble, I mean memed on the internet because obviously he's not getting any repercussions for it. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is this is exactly what we're saying. You, These people were more than happy to put these rules in place, but the oligarchical class that we have in this country is not following them. It's you're the one that has to put up with these new parameters. You're the one that has to figure out how to feed your family despite not having a job to go to anymore with these lockdowns. Uh, Cuomo's still on the news every night. He's still cashing paychecks. Pelosi's still going into Congress, being speaker. He won an Emmy. Oh, she can't talk. Yeah, <laughs> got a reward for it. <laughs> he got a reward. Award, excuse me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just to, to drive home that point. That's We can see directly 
where they're ignoring the same rules they're putting in place. These things that are here to protect us all that you have to do, you still see reporters coming on to tell us how important it is that we wear a mask every day, that we social distance. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing those things, but the reporter who's claiming that we need to do that thing walks up to the stage without a mask on, puts the mask on behind stage, walks out on stage, takes his mask off to talk into the microphone. Mm-hmm. So you can it's see all, this. And it's all the illusion. It's exactly. They, they need to maintain these, these ideas that they're also following these rules in order to keep you uppity citizens in line, but they don't really have any intent of actually reaping the repercussions of their own decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of takes us right into what the state is. Obviously, is going to be our next point. We, we've now kind of defined that we are not the state, that you have to have this separation between you as a private individual and what the state is. The state has its own agenda. Um, and we're going to go into a little bit of kind of a, a at least a divergence of economics here. Um, in Rothbard's book, he talks about two different forms of economics. Um, the first of which, uh, or excuse me, two, uh, two different wealth production methods. Um, the first of which being the economics means, which this is pretty simple. You're born naked into this world. There's natural resources out there. Go get them, young man, make something valuable. Uh, he describes it as a mixing of labor and natural resources to produce goods, products um, that then can be traded in the free market. And this is a lot of the idea between uh, anarcho-capitalists or free marketers or, or libertarians like ourselves. We think that the the most mutually beneficial way for these goods to exchange hands out there in the world typically comes from voluntary trade, that you're going to find things that are either of value based on what you have to trade for it or not of value, and, and you're going to back off, find it somewhere else, or decide to make it on your own. Um, and this is the most peaceful way. This is how, how goods go back and forth without any uh, coercion, any force. Mm-hmm. So if that is the economic means, then the other way to acquire and create wealth I guess acquire is the better word. It is simpler. It requires no productivity whatsoever. And it is the way of seizure of another's goods and services by use or the threat of violence. And this is known as the political means. And so that is what libertarians mean when we say taxation is theft, right? Because without, without having that kind of logical background of, okay, there's two ways to create wealth, one is I produce something of value and sell it, and the other is I take it. That is what that is the logical train of thinking that leads liber- libertarians to actually say that. And I know that without without understanding that, libertarians sound fringe, right? We're just over there in the corner yelling, taxation is theft, and we hate the government and stuff like that. But it it makes us come to this conclusion that okay, that if I am a sovereign individual and the fruits of my labor and my time are mine, then anything that is not willing and, um, you know, two ways, I want to say compliant, but that's not the right word. Um, mutually any, agreed upon. Yes, thank you. Any, any interaction that's not mutually agreed upon, therefore, is coercion. And that violates the non-aggression principle. Therefore, it is theft. So that is that is where libertarians actually come from when we are saying that taxation is theft. And Logan and I are not opposed to leveraging funds for the greater good. And we'll probably do a minarchist or an anarchist society and how it might look like. Because you cannot, like we said in the last episode, you cannot forsake the collective for 100% individualism because that is evil. So we're not out here advocating that no, every man should be his own castle and we shouldn't pull full pull funds together to create something better for everyone. 
But at the same time, regardless of what you intend to use those funds for, to take them from me at threat of imprisonment or violence is essentially theft. And um, I think we're going to stand behind that one. I think it's important, too, to point out that a lot of people have a misconception that anarchy and libertarianism is 100% empirically about the individual. And though it is more individually focused, I think that that's a, a false perception. The idea of this is that you have a free market, that this is going to allow you to trade goods and services with other people uh, to find the best deal for yourself or to um, to sell a, a supply that might be at a, a particularly high demand at that time. But the idea behind it is this market will ultimately balance out. There will be holes in it where people take advantage of. There will, of course, be people who come out a little bit better in, in the barter system who end up doing uh, better than the rest of us. But every one of these transactions, even if they aren't mutually beneficial, are at least mutually agreed upon when they're going mm -hmm. into it. And therefore, is a, a social contract that, you know, it, it's one thing to go into a car dealership, get a bum deal because you don't know what you're talking about about cars and some uh, car dealer's been in the game a long time, talks you into paying a little bit too much. It's still something that you walked in there and agreed upon. Mm -hmm. Taxation is not. You're born into the United States. And when you get that first paycheck, Uncle Sam needs 33%. There's no mm -hmm. questions, no if, and, and buts about it. And don't pay your taxes and see how free you really are. And I think the best way to um, you know, personify that would be, you know, the state comes and knocks at your door and it says, hey, pay your taxes for protection. And I say from behind the door, you know, protection from what? And the state says, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't pay your taxes and open this door. And right. I think that that's the best way to really drive home what is actually going on and with the idea of taxes. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people that disagree with us and say, but, but taxes and insert statist propaganda. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're going to stick, we're, we're sticking to these guns. So I think that it's easy to wrap it up. The state, to put it just a nice little bow on it, the state is the organization of the political means providing a legal, orderly, and systematic channel for the predation on private property. Right. This is, uh, you hear libertarians use this one a lot as well. Taxation is theft might be number one in our lexicon, uh, but not too far behind is the state is the mob. Uh, this is essentially, we see this in a very similar ilk, that there's an organization that tells you that for the good of your standing in this neighborhood, in the state's case, it might be the United States, uh, the continent of North America, but for your safety, your well-being and the well-being of everybody around you and all your fellow citizens, we're going to need you to pay this protection money or tax. Uh, and if you don't do that, that ball is going to drop, even if you don't ever actually need that protection from this uh, horde over the horizon that's coming by or from this rival gang that's uh, threatened to come through. The people who need that tax money, they're going to make sure the ball drops one way or another. You're going to mm -hmm. go to prison or you're going to get your kneecaps broken if this is uh, Chicago mobs, and they're going to find a way to get that tax money one way or another. It's probably going to mm -hmm. come a little heavier on the back end, which is a uh, part of the, the stick that uh, incentivizes you to go ahead and pay your taxes like a good person. Absolutely. And Rothbard has a great quote to kind of wrap this, uh, this idea up. And indeed, what is the state anyways, but organized banditry? What is taxation, but theft on a gigantic unchecked scale? What is war, but murder on a scale impossible by private police forces? What is conscription, but mass enslavement? Can anyone imagine a private police force getting away with the fraction of what the state gets away with and does habitually year after year, century after century? At the end of the day, the state is no more than a larger mafia. 
Yeah, I did love that quote. I'm glad you found that too. That was uh, actually not from Anatomy of the State. That was one that uh, Matthew found third party, which uh, really hit home for me. I thought that was pretty poignant. And there's, um, you know, there's a reason we're reading Murray's uh, book before we make these podcasts, is because uh, Gentleman's got some good ideas and he's uh, he's pretty articulate with them as well. Uh, really puts them down on paper in a, a way that's uh, digestible so long as your vocabulary can keep up with it. Mm-hmm. And I know what you guys are thinking, right? We're just radicals and how can the state function and yada, yada, and Logan or Matt are just fringe and insert all of the arguments that I know that people are going to roll their eyes about um, if you don't already subscribe to this belief. But at the same time, I hope that we are making compelling arguments that might make you question maybe um, your own political ideology. But how can you look at this quote unquote COVID relief bill and see all the fluff and the wasting of funds and the misallocation of tax dollars and not think that the government is robbing you? I mean, the best way to sum it up is the government isn't sending you money from some government bank account, right? They just borrowed, they took out a loan of $3,000 in your name. They gave themselves and their friends $2,400 and they sent you $600 and said, thanks for the line of credit. That is what this COVID tax bill really is. Right. And we're going to go ahead and bail out all the airline industries, the big businesses. Uh, know that GMC is not one of them getting at this time, but you know, who among us was distraught that GMC went bankrupt, that it was going to completely, or did we all go, hmm, maybe we're going to get a couple new car companies out of this. Maybe somebody's going to fill that market. Did we think it was impossible that no, was air travel going to be done with after the first lockdowns? Or do you think somebody would have seen, hey, these airlines who were operating a little bit over their overhead and went bankrupt during this, uh, this down economic time, they did it wrong. Now there's this huge niche in the market. Why not fill that in? Maybe I've got a small fleet of jets somewhere that are no longer in use that I could uh, get back up to running and and see if I can't make that money myself. Yep, absolutely. And the best way that I can put this in other terms is that they've made you pay your taxes this whole time. They've robbed you of your dignity. And in return for your obedience, your obedient compliance, you get $600. Merry Christmas, peasants. You know, (laughs) over... 18, you know, you've had $1,800 over nine months. That comes out to a little bit over $6.50 a day. That is what your compliance has gotten you, $6.50 a day. And the problem is that Congress is taking your money, our money, and spending it on a bunch of things in this stimulus check that you and I don't care about. And Congress has held us hostage with this bill. You want relief? Cool. You want your $600? Well, then you're going to have to suffer all of this extra stuff. You're going to have to suffer money going to Israel. You're going to have to suffer money going to Pakistan, money going to Sudan for their border security. You're going to have to suffer two museums that aren't even going to be able to open because of COVID restrictions, right? You're just going to have to suffer all of this. We also decided to go ahead and shoehorn in a whole new set of felonies. If you're uh, stuck at home during your stimulus, you don't have anything to do and you've run through the catalog of Disney plus and you decide to illegally stream the the Chinese version of Mulan, that's now a felony. I mean, what American amongst us outside of maybe that industry was clamoring for that to become a felony, to throw people in prison, to make you a slave, to sit behind bars for watching a TV show that you decided not to pay $2 for. Mm -hmm. What they've done is they've, they've taken your ability to work. They've made you stay home. So naturally then it's like, oh, I guess I should stream a show. And if you stream it wrong, 
Well, congratulations. You're now a felony if they choose to pursue that. And <laughs> we can go into we can go into all of the absurdities of this bill, but the real problem is is the system that passes it, right? So I'm, I always think of Nancy Pelosi's quote. It's like, well, we have to pass the bill so that you can see what's in it as she's trying to ram through Obamacare. And the issue is- You forgot to dribble some drool down your face when you did the accent. <laughs> right, and I didn't turn into a vampire and like fly away <laughs> to go suck some children's <laughs> blood or anything like that. But the problem is that it's not just this bill. It's not just an isolated issue. This is how bills work. And Logan was bringing this up and I'll let him take that one. Right. This is something that uh, you can read any of these. There's none of these bills are ever a page long. There's always some ridiculous amount of pages. And with this particular one, I think this was what? 500 pages long. 5,000 5, pages long. I needed to add a zero into that. And they gave them 48 hours to read the damn thing. Not even. So, so it's like, good luck. Even if these guys did have a vested interest, they really did have our backs. By the time this come to vote, they would have to vote no on it just out of principle of, I have no idea what you snuck into the fine print here. And this is, mm -hmm. you know, beyond government. Think about any contract. Every time you click on the terms and agreements, uh, think of the old South Park episode where they do the human centipede because they signed up for all the Apple things. It's it, the fine print. The devil's in the details. This is where they're going to hide. Page 5007 of the fine print is where they're going to hide in there that it's a felony to download stuff illegally online. Uh, these, this is where they shoehorn these things in. And it goes, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and list off 50 examples of it, but go read any of the bills that have ever passed. It's all sneaky stuff. I mean, we got rid of the, the federal bank at one point in time. Uh, they had a secret vote on Christmas Eve where they've re-ratified it along with a bunch of other things. So that you would read 20 things, get bored of it, put it down, not realize that we just uh, decided to inflate the American dollar indefinitely after that. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how it works, is they put all of this fluff in there. And it's one of those things that it's and it's different from even the local level to the state level. Um, because it's like when an ordinance comes before us, we are voting on one specific thing, right? We are going to do this particular thing. It is short, right? I mean, the longest ordinance I've seen come across my desk is like two pages long. And a lot of it's just like, whereas, 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 you know, a lot of really boring legal language, but it's very easy. Like we are voting for this particular thing or voting to spend money here. Um, but when you get to these larger bills, they start packing it in. And they put one thing in there that everybody wants. They put COVID stimulus in there because, dude, like it's one of those things that I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily a proponent for just the government printing money and giving it to the American people. But I will concede that if the government is going to lock you in your homes and say that your job is inessential and that you can't go to work, well, then they've got to do something, right? right. If they're going to take the paychecks out of your hand. They've got to put the money, the food on the table. Yeah, absolutely. In an ideal society, away. we would never, you would not have government intervention into your life to the point to where you couldn't have to work and you had to have government stimulus to get by. But okay, I'll concede that in this situation, sure, like you've got to do something to actually take care of people that you, from a problem that you have created. But 
when you start packing all of this extra stuff in there, it's like, okay, you want COVID relief. Well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we're going to give some money over here and we're going to send some money over here and we're going to do the, you know, and it just keeps going and going and going to the point to where almost five, was it $700 billion does not get spent on the American people. Then you were, you're essentially a, you're a pawn on the government's chessboard. And I know people are like, oh, well, Donald Trump's terrible because he sent it back and he wanted $2,000, but then he, he signed it anyways. He caved because Donald Trump has no political will whatsoever. And so uh, it, back to that idea of uh, how important it is to have a consistently logical ideology. Uh, Donald Trump does not. Donald Trump, <laughs> he likes Donald Trump. That's his ideology is Donald Trump's the best and whatever he needs to do in the moment to troll the Democratic Party or troll the, the deep state in the, in that uh, particular sentence is what he's going to do. You know, Donald Trump opened up a lot of people's eyes to these crazy wars that are going on, uh, to the fact that we funded directly ISIS, that we fueled the jets that bombed the, the people of Yemen and sent them into the worst cholera outbreak of all time because we essentially took out their, their clean water, uh, which is, I mean, picks – it's a war crime. Several different uh, categories out of the Geneva Convention. We broke a couple of them by doing that kind of stuff. Let's call it what it is. It's war crimes. It's war crime, absolutely. Um, but that's that's what you see in these these times. Um, there's a reason this particular bill is 5,000 pages. There's a lot of long bills. There's a lot of crazy stuff that gets shoehorned into this stuff. Um, but the stuff that really gets in there, the, the grossest things we see, the spying apparatus on American citizens, uh, the right for them to throw you in prison without giving any kind of trial for it, that stuff comes in during times of fear like this. They know that we're desperate. We're hurting. Americans need a paycheck really bad. Even if it's $600, that's not going to solve anybody's problems. But, hey, it might put food on the table for the next month. It's a hell of a lot better than nothing. Right. And so that's why you see this. They're going to shoehorn a lot of extra stuff in when they get an opportunity because this is exactly when people are going to be desperate enough not to push back on this. Right. And that's exactly – that's a really good segue to, like, how the state preserves itself because – the basic and long-term problem of any state is ideological, and that is how to maintain the majority support of the subjects. And it's always going to be the chief task of whoever is in charge to always secure at least at the, you know, at least the active enthusiasm, but at the very least, the passive resignation and acceptance of the majority. And that's exactly what Logan is talking about, right? Where it's like, man, I... I'm really not pumped about what's going on, but $600 would be nice. So, okay, I guess I'm guess I'm okay with it. And it's one of those things that I just I reject that principle because it's when it's okay. You're in a plane, and all of a sudden the uh, the cabin is depressurized. The oxygen mask drops down. There's a reason that they tell you to secure your own oxygen mask before you assist your neighbor, right? Because if you've ever watched those NASA studies and all of those jet pilots doing all of those low oxygen training, you see very quickly what the effects of oxygen deprivation is on the brain. And the reason that they tell you to put on your own mask before you help your neighbor, that in the two to three minutes as you're fighting to get the mask over some panicking person that you don't know or your kid, well, then maybe the effects of oxygen deprivation have inhibited your ability to put your own on to the point to where now you are no longer, you're, you're, you are part of the problem, right? Um, something that they, that they taught us in ski patrol too is like you, 
the, at the very least, your scene must be safe because you cannot be a victim as well, right? If I go in there and I get hurt, guess what? Now there's two victims, right? <laughs> there's two people that need help. And that is exactly what's going on. We are neglecting our own oxygen mask. And it's not the American people. This is coming down from the state. The state is neglecting our oxygen mask to assist others beside us. We are the, we are the second kid, right? There's if, if, if uh, daddy state is in the, is in the, uh, the window seat, then all of this other foreign aid and all of this fluff is the kid in the middle seat. And we're the kid in the aisle <laughs> and we're looking over saying, um, but, 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 but what about me? Or uh, maybe even a better metaphor is you're sitting in first class with the state and it's uh, going to the second class and putting all the mask on before it comes back to, <laughs> to give you your mask. Uh, but it only has a mask left with a little bit of a leak in it. It cracked from the back. So we do have a, this is what's left with it. So (laughs) here's the crumbs that we can keep you going, but I did give you a mask. Did I not? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think this is an interesting idea with these, the idea that, uh, you know, of course, every state tends to come into existence through force and it is possible for a period of time to hold your people down through force to keep the, the order you have in the, uh, authority you have over your people with the threat of force. Um, but it only goes so long. You ultimately, if you're going to sustain an empire, um, you eventually have to get to a point where you create this apparatus that supports you. Um, and Rothbart put it down as uh, intellectuals or opinion molders of society. Uh, and it, at one point in time, this came from the church primarily. This came from whatever the religious thing was at the time. Um, we saw a lot of this. Our, all of our rulers used to be ordained by God. Uh, the, a lot of the Oriental tradition is that they're literally God on earth. Um, the Egyptians did that as well. Their pharaohs were literal reincarnations of gods. Um, and that gives them ultimate authority. Now, as societies move to this more secular realm, um, and this was something that was even addressed in 1974 when Murray wrote this book, is that we've shifted now to this idea of the scientifically minded or the intellectually in, uh, superior individuals that are running this country that we sort of have the right people, the right decision makers in place, and that they're just naturally going to make better decisions than we would because they're, they're this uh, philosopher oligarchy that, that has all the right answers. Mm-hmm. And I think a term that maybe we dropped in uh, the first episode is the, is the cathedral. And so we wanted to revisit this and uh, really just explain it. So the cathedral comes from Michael Malice in his book, The New Right. If you guys really want to understand 2020 politics if you guys really want to understand what has happened in america with you know quote unquote the alt-right because that's what hillary clinton called them but it's 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 not just like one centralized organization right it's the new right um if you guys really want to understand american politics you have to read or listen to michael malice's the new right that's his plug i'm going to tweet at him and say that i dropped this so maybe he tweets back at me (laughs) but you can describe the cathedral as the, as the complex of leftist organizations that dominate our society. That's media, that's entertainment, that's academia. And we see it every day because the words of, you know, the words of God are passed down through the priest of the cathedral. We see them every night when they get on CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC. We saw it, we see it in John Oliver, right? We see it in Trevor Noah, right? We see it in all of these different aspects that are dominated by the left because culture is downstream from politics. And I want to make that point too. Yeah, that's probably more poignant. Um, I think it's upstream from politics. uh, 
this is a leftist organization, or at least that's the focus on it that, that Michael Malice puts on currently. But I think that's more of a product of the current amalgamation of the political view of the, the average person. We tend to be more left-leaning right now. The majority is in the left, uh, Democrat voting. And that's why these organizations are left-leaning right now. I don't think that there's any question in my mind that if we had this huge red wave, if 75% of America was Republican tomorrow, this cathedral would just shift. It's not like the <laughs> cathedral is only a tool of the left. This is a tool of the state. This is something that the government's going to use to justify everything they're doing. And they're more than happy to switch over. I mean, we saw this uh, and I mean, some great examples of, of what we're talking about here, the intellectuals or when you have politicians that get demonized for uh, being Russian agents today. Used to, that was this racist idea that the right used, that McCarthyism back in the day was the, the terrible right-wing warmongers of this country that they would call anybody unpatriot or they would call them a, a Soviet spy if they were willing to not want to march troops over all over the world to do these proxy wars, to fund the Cold War. Uh, and it's just shifted now. The states had the same agenda the whole time, but we've seen a shift away on the right side from war. And at least the left is accepting war, I guess, as long as the, their parties are in charge a little bit more. Um, but either way, this cathedral is going to continue justifying the acts of the state, no matter if it has to be for the left or for the right. They're going to mm -hmm. find their justifications and make sure that you understand that the state's making the right decisions and there's nothing you need to worry about. Right. And we even see that that um, that flip flop and uh, into uh, with the uh, the appointment, the appointment of uh, ACB. Right. So in 2012, right, the the right blocked Obama's last Supreme Court nominee. They say, nope, it's an election year. The people have the right to choose. And it's like, well, the people have actually already chosen because they elected their senators and their president. So last time I checked, I think that they are within their right to do so. And all of these Republicans were grandstanding and yada, 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 yada. And then you get to 2020 in the midst of a pandemic, right? Where they haven't even met for COVID relief in like three months. Oh, but don't worry. The Senate can meet to ram down the confirmation of ACB. And all of these people on the right that were sitting there saying like, this is just a, this is a, this is a demon nation of American politics in 2012, uh, 2016, sorry. They just flipped, you know, it's like they, right. they forgot what they said. They had, poli <laughs> they had political amnesia, right? They could not even remember those quotes of them. And they were caught on air too, right? I remember Lindsey Graham saying like, you can hold me hostage um, and hold me accountable for these type of things. But guess what? Four years later, he is right on the other side. And the Democrats yep. did the exact same thing too, right? They were using the arguments that the Republican used in 2020, right? So, and so it is, the point is that these people are not really opposed to each other, right? They give us the illusion that they are at war with each other, but they're all establishment, right? And they're it's happy to fight about these ideas. Oh. I mean, that's the smokescreen. The, the more times we can argue about gender wage gaps, or is, you know, how prevalent is racism inside the workplace? Not to say that these things don't need to be addressed even. There are issues like this, but there are issues that the state is not concerned about. But they are issues that the state would love for you to be concerned about. Because if you're worried about there not being enough black or female appointees in Biden's cabinet, Biden's happy to grab all the females and all the black guys that are 100% pro-war and 100% big government and 100% Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So there's no diversity of ideas. 
But we get lost in this inertia of, hey, we won the battle. Those bastards on the right didn't get their way. And we have a, a cabinet now that's more representative of what Americans think. When I would argue, it's probably less so. It's mm -hmm. more indicative of what the state would think. Uh, but it, they just happen to have a little bit better demographic skin color to what the population of America does. And that's great. I'm not saying I want a bunch of white dudes in there. I'm saying I want a bunch of people, no matter what skin color they are, they can all be purple for all I give a shit. As long as a couple of them say, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill brown people in Yemen just because they're unfortunate enough to be against the Saudi Arabians who we get most of our oil from. So I think to, to just kind of like shift back to what we were talking about, the cathedral, because you do, it, it does manifest itself in a lot of ways. And the diversity of skin color without a diversity of idea is another way that the cathedral perpetuates itself. But another way that the cathedral has really shifted to is instead of the clergy, we have scientific experts, right? And it's really interesting because science isn't really a belief. It's a way of understanding the world, right? The scientific method is I can, I did something. This is how I did it. Can you replicate that? If so, okay, then we can probably start to deduce that right. this is, you know, these are laws of nature and that, okay, if I, if I stack up these chemicals and do certain things, okay, there is a very predictable chain reaction of it. Right. So science isn't like, yeah, believe in science, science, believe in you, you believe in God, you believe in your, maybe even your state, you believe in divinity, but you don't believe in math. You know, you don't believe in chemistry because these are empirical things. And right. I think that's an interesting idea. And we're pulling that a little bit from Kurt Metzger. I, I give him credit. He's a stand-up comedian who I find uh, really uh, insightful in these kinds of things. Um, but he really brought that point up that to say you believe in science, you're putting science in a religious realm at that point. You're making it a, something that's not concrete that, that you believe that you hold on to beliefs. They're things that you have faith in. You shouldn't have faith in science. Science is true. Science is what it is. And we see this nitpicking on both sides with it. Um, we have two political parties that neither one thinks the other one believes in science. People on the right think it's ridiculous that people could transition sex. They, they can't fathom the idea that somebody would think that that's something that actually happens. Uh, people on the left will talk about the science of climate change and how people on the right will ignore it. Um, mm -hmm. I think the truth of it is, is we have two parties who know not a damn thing about science. Right. And that leads us to right in the middle where we get where we get these like scientific talking points or right or like scientific agents let's call them and Dr. Fauci is the best one that I can use um he is a state agent he's a bureaucrat right this I'm not saying that he did not do cool things to get his his uh, medical degree in science right I'm not attacking his credentials because he is a smart man he knows way more about things than I do in that And I realm. think real quick I think that's something to point out that's important about a lot of these things that we'll say state actors a lot and I think that brings to to the front of your mind um, MK Ultra, these secret agents that have been planted that have been paid from day one. That's not typically the case. The way it works is say I'm big news network A and I have this opinion about things. I'm not going to go hire a good reporter and convince him to only share my ideas. I'm going to find the best reporter that has my ideas and I'm going to hire that mm -hmm. person and I'm going to hire the next five guys on that list so that that room is saturated with people who already are within my ecosystem and when I want to steer a story that way, it's not going to be that difficult. Right. And that really manifests it. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Thank you. Um, Because if you look at what's happened as Dr. Fauci being like the face of the pandemic, and I've heard a lot of people, it's like, why well, don't I don't trust Donald Trump, but I trust Dr. Fauci. It's like, okay, cool. So he's just a state bureaucrat too. And he was very willing to accept Biden's uh, appointment to chief medical um, 
advisor or whatever whatever lofty government goal he uh, position he was given. But he's moved the goalpost so many times on the American people, and he's lied to us, right? And so this New York art, this New York Times article broke on New Year's Eve, right? Because what better time to put out a story than on New York uh, than on uh, Christmas Eve? Because everybody's with their family, no one's digesting the news. So the New York Times just slips this article right in there. And I'm going to read from it, right? This is, quote, Dr. Fauci acknowledged that he has slowly and deliberately moved the goalpost, doing so partly based on new science and partly based on his gut feeling that the country is finally ready to hear what he really thinks. And that, to me, just blows my mind. So here is a person that is upheld to the highest levels. This is Dr. Fauci. Um, he works for the CDC. And he admitted in an in an interview that he has lied to the American people and maybe lied. You can say it's like, maybe it's an omission of error, but last time I checked, that's still a lie. Right. Um, and it's really interesting because it puts you in this area where Democrats either have to acknowledge that Donald Trump was right on calling the New York times fake news, or they have to admit that the sacred face of this pandemic has lied to them several times. And I would even go farther to say you you kind of said maybe it was a lie by omission or maybe it was a, an unwitting lie. Uh, it wasn't. Fauci's come out and said that by now that he was doing this intentionally to save the medical mask for the hospitals so that we didn't uh, deplete the supply. And you could argue on the, the merits of that one way or the okay. other. But the truth of the matter is Fauci's position is that he is supposed to advise the American public on these matters. And he lied to your face to help the state. Now, I know I'm kicking a dead horse at this point. But this just goes back again to what we said in the first uh, topic on this podcast. You are not the state. The state might act like it's taking care of you. But as soon as the state needs something, it's perfectly willing to lie to as many people as they want. You don't need a mask. Why would you wear a mask during this pandemic? It's not going to do anything. And then when the government has all the masks, they go, turns out you need a mask. It's really important to have a mask, guys, <laughs> after they've stockpiled their version. And again, you can say that maybe that was the right move because we did need to get those masks in the hospital. I'm not arguing that point. I'm saying this person who was appointed to be your advisor during a pandemic lied to your face about what the best thing to do was because it was better for the state. Mm -hmm. And I think just like the, the last, the last thing I want to harp on Fauci is um, when he, when he uh, said that Americans might need to carry around like a vaccine certificate or some sort of market. And like, I think it was what Andrew Yang said, is there a way to like put a barcode to figure out who's had the vaccine, right? And these ideas on its surface might be harmless, right? Like maybe it is good to know who's vaccinated, who's not, right? Like I have a, I have a vaccination record that it's very easy to find because I've been vaccinated. Like we're not anti-vax, right? I've, I don't want polio. I don't want meningitis. I don't want all of these other preventable diseases that have been eradicated or have been minimized because of it. But to sit there and say like, maybe we need an open identification who has had a vaccine? Do people not realize what that means historically? Like, did you guys not open up your history books? Did you sleep through high school history because you had a coach teaching it? No offenses to all the coaches that taught high school history, but it's like, did no one instill the passion of history so that you paid attention? Because to take it to the extreme, like it's a really easy way to identify Jews. We're going to make them wear a Star of David on <laughs> All of their arms and so that way when we start rounding them up later perfect we already know where they are hey, Who pretty they easy are. right we've already got them out there put the the mark on them 
I, I think uh, that's probably something we're safe of with as, as much of an evangelical strength as we still have in this country. It's going to be pretty hard to give anybody a, a mark with all those revelation verses out there. Sure. And, and good and good. Be skeptical of the state. And so just to just to keep like moving along, another way that we've really seen the state manifest itself is its protection from outsiders. Right. Like Donald Trump is the very first. He's the he's the easiest example. Um, the establishment rallied against him. They all of the former presidents said, we are not voting for Donald Trump. We are voting for Hillary. Why? Because Hillary is the establishment. Then as soon as he's elected, before he's elected, even we have a deep state coup against him. When you start spying the the incumbent administration was spying on a presidential campaign and that spying leaked into his presidency. And for three and a half years, we had to suffer through Russiagate. And then all of a sudden, you not know, to mention that Russiagate originally began from the Steele dossier, which was paid for by our government in the first place. So this this fake dossier that turned out to have no legitimacy was also paid for by the deep state in order to, to get the ball moving on prosecuting and, and pulling this coup off. And mm-hmm. hey, me and Matthew both think Trump's a war criminal. We think he should be in prison forever, just like every other president in my lifetime. But Amen. this is the deep state openly trying to throw a president out of office that we elected. Whether you agree with them or not, that should scare the shit out of you. Right. And it's just in the prosecution of all of those around him, right? Because I heard this for years. Oh, Trump's going down. Look at all these people that are surrounding him that are going to, you know, they're getting closer. And it's like, they're getting those people on process crimes, right? Mm -hmm. Like they may have said something. They lied to the FBI or they found something in their taxes, right? They're getting them on all of these like technicalities of the law not that not this grand conspiracy that russia put in donald trump and vladimir putin orchestrated this grand conspiracy and it's just it's just so absurd and i mean we even saw it with uh, like bernie sanders right um he had the nomination stolen twice from him the in 2016 the super delegates <laughs> like bernie was he was he was gonna win the primary and then all of a sudden the super delegates met the dnc and oh oh look at that hillary clinton's the winner and then right. the coup of Super Tuesday, where he is, you know, like all of the moderates and the centrist Democrats dropped out, put their support behind Joe Biden. Elizabeth Warren stayed in to peel off progressive voters. And then Biden goes and wins in huge margins in states that he hasn't even campaigned. In. Joe Biden hasn't even left his basement at this point in the year. Like they're still hiding Joe Biden in a basement. <laughs> I think it's Joe Biden's like massive presence that's uh, allowed him to touch so many people's hearts from his basement. Uh, it's pretty <laughs> hip with all the young kids. And there's a reason we're giving you examples on both sides, guys. We're, we're trying to show you that this has nothing to do with right or left ideology. This has everything to do with, are you taking away from what the state is? In uh, an example like Donald Trump, again, I don't think Donald Trump had any kind of ideology that was guiding him to show what the swamp was. I think that he's just a marketing genius. He saw that well, Obama just ran on hope and change and, and uh, changing the uh, the momentum of the, the U.S. And, and getting rid of all this corruption. Grant didn't do a lot about it. Trump just ran on that same thing. And we've seen this as well with, with Ron Paul. I mean, uh, he was huge up and coming in the liberty movement. A lot of us are into the liberty movement because of Ron Paul. Um, most of the influences that Matt and I draw from are the ones who pointed us to Ron Paul because he got them into the liberty movements. Mm-hmm. Um, he was polling really well in 2008. He had a good shot, and the only place you'd ever hear about him was on Jon Stewart late at night. <laughs> you just can't get a hold of that that kind of information. And then, he, again, more recently with AOC. I mean, AOC was uh, just recently snubbed for a position on the committee. Um, 
She was. Uh, I think it was the ENC, the ENC Economic ENC. and uh, Energy right. and Commerce Committee. That's right. That's right. Um, and she was you know, a little more established when Democrat was put in there, um, who falls in line with Nancy Pelosi's ideas a little bit more. And I think that this one's especially poignant because AOC is this major progressive, right? Well, we just saw this time where Jimmy Dore pulled together a bunch of people to call upon AOC and the rest of the squad to withhold their votes to force Nancy Pelosi to vote on uh, Medicare for our holding their vote for Pelosi as Speaker of the House, that is. Um, and in doing so, they would make it so that there's either going to be a Republican in there or you can bring finally Medicare for all to a vote, which was something AOC basically is why she got elected. She told us as Americans, you don't have to wait anymore. I'm going to get you Medicare for all. The time is now. She had a perfect opportunity to do so. And to further her own career, she decided not to. She fell in line with the Democrats and the establishment. And she said, it wouldn't make any sense for me to do this. It would be suicide to my political, literally said it would be suicide to her political career, which ought to show you right there. She doesn't believe in any of this crap she's peddling. She just wants to be in office. Uh, but even with that, that was not enough inertia for her to get in. She's still so much of a threat because the people who are backing her, the people who are tweeting back at AOC are the kind of people that are going to disrupt the state. And they don't want that anywhere near it. It's, it's pretty wild. And I know that Logan and I, have, I, we probably sound redundant at this point, but we, we just bring all of these different examples forward to show you just, just to reinforce the fact that we are not the state and the state is not us, that there are two separate realities and that the agenda of the Americans, American people is different than what the agenda of the state is. And just to kind of wrap it up, like, um, we wanted to talk about how the state really just transcends its own limits. Um, and you can look at it like the Bill of Rights, right? It's designed to be a check on government. And I don't, I don't know what the answer to this is because I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because, but there's got to be some sort of tweaks to this system, right? Because at the end of the day, the Constitution creates three separate branches of government, independent from each other. But at the end of the day, one of those, the executive branch, appoints judges. The second, the legislative branch, confirms judges. And the third, now all of a sudden, has been propped up as, um, as well, J. Allen Smith has a great quote to say exactly what I'm trying to. The Constitution is, is designed with checks and balances to limit any one governmental power, and yet had then developed a Supreme Court with the monopoly of ultimate interpreting power. So all of a sudden, like, we have this these checks and balances, but who checks the legisl who checks the judicial right. branch? And you learn about this in elementary school. Look how wonderful our system is here in America, uh, which you know elementary school is just another form of government propaganda at this point from the way we see it. But look at this beautiful country and, and why we're so just and so free and, and so uncorrupt here in America is because we have this system of checks and balances. Uh, and you might even say, you know what? these are people that have, have taken to office. they swear, on the Bible, in front of God, in front of the nation, that they're going to uphold the Constitution to the best of their ability, that they're going to leave their bias at the door, and that it doesn't really matter who appointed them because they're, they're all empirical judges, right? But if you're going to have that line of thinking, I would present to you, how do you feel about uh, every time George Floyd gets killed and the cops do an investigation on it? And it's pretty wild how many times those cops are not at fault. There's really no nothing else we could have done but shoot that guy. And, and I know he just had a little bit of marijuana in his pocket, but you know, it is what it is. And, and we've done the investigation. Looks like everything come up on the up and up. Um, there's very few people. I mean, even the, the farthest people on the right don't think that the cops are 
are equivalent to being uh, their own judge and jury. It's something that we all kind of understand. Is, it's a silly idea to think somebody's going to police themselves. And this extrapolates even farther out. I mean, uh, an example I like to use is uh, the Baylor Bears at one point in time. Huge sex scandal. Their players were uh, being reported for sexual assault all around town. It was getting pol- reported to the police. Nothing ever seemed to happen about it. So there's a little bit of rumbling. Somebody gets to the NCAA and then the Baylor Bears organization decides it's time we do our own investigation into this and we find out what the hell's going on here. And they fire their head football coach because, yeah, he was covering these things up. He was talking to the police and he was making sure our players didn't get in trouble for these terrible things they did. So we fired our head football coach. Well, then the NCAA comes back in and decides to do an investigation for some reason. They thought they should also um, do an investigation here. And what happens? They find several more people to fire because it turns out there were a lot of people hiding the stuff, a lot of boosters, a lot of coaches. Uh, they take away bowl games. They take away funding from the university, all these kind of things, take away scholarships for them to pay football players. And that's the reason you see people. They, people like to police themselves because they can give themselves that slap on the wrist in front of the camera and go, we're really sorry that happened, but we've we've handled it adequately at this point. Right. We've done our invest. We've done our internal investigation and that will oftentimes lead to, you know, firing like the one bad apple. But what never really happens is, you know, the mayor, the police commissioner and all the other persons responsible for the policies that actually allowed for some of these grotesque and just atrocious violations of our constitutional rights at the hands of law enforcement. And we're not, I'm not trying to harp on law enforcement, right? But it is just a really good example of what happens and how skeptical I am when I hear that the police are investigating the police. Like we can take Breonna Taylor, for example, right? Like that was a, that no-knock raid, that was constitutional. And that is absolute crap, right? Why, why on God's green earth, do you need to be busting down people's door without telling them who you are, especially for like a low level drug offense, right? It's one thing. It's like, okay, Hey, look, the FBI gave us evidence of there's some terrorists and they're hoarding massive bombs. And there's, you know, there are, there will be times, time and a place, right. For, for no knock raids. But, and it's kind of that same example of, Hey, if all the money that our taxes were going towards a hundred percent went towards infrastructure, schooling, our population, educating the people, uh, medical use for everybody. If it all went to great things, we probably wouldn't be libertarians. We probably wouldn't even have this idea. But what we've seen is this bastardization of it over time, that the this corruption is ultimately going to take seed and you're going to see stuff like this happen where, uh, you know, oh, it's perfectly constitutional for us to kick somebody's door in because they're selling a plant to somebody else and shoot their dog and then 20 times in the chest. And then when he had the gall to pick up a gun and fire a single shot back at us because we woke him up from sleep with gunfire, they're going to put that dude in jail forever <laughs> for shooting at cops. Right. And, and at the end of the day, they, they come up and they say, well, you know, this officer is charged with wanton endangerment, which came from him firing a bullet into the neighbor's apartment. It has nothing yeah. to do with his blind firing into the room <laughs> that killed Breonna Taylor. Right. That, that, that's fine. But the fact that, like, we're going to get him on this petty felony of wanton endangerment from firing a bullet into the neighbor's apartment. And that is exactly what we're talking about, right? Because then the AG gets up there, who is also part of the state, and says, and says well, we've done our investigation, and it looks like everything is there. We took some missteps, but at the end of the day, no laws were broken. <laughs> like, yeah, of course no laws were broken, because you guys wrote the laws for yourself. And right. then we have the, leg- we have then the, the judicial branch 
put a rubber stamp on it. I remember when the when the pandemic started and the governor's very first address, she said she reassured us that I have the authority to do this based on precedents set by the state. Oh, okay, there's your appeal to authority. And then later, when businesses and other entities sue the state, the Supreme Court comes in and says, no, actually, the executive branch does have the right to fine you and put you in prison for non-compliance. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> so we have in this idea that, that we, as the people, have to have a third-party judge, jury, and executioner in a lot of cases, but that does not apply to the government. Like, are we, like, we're just going to trust the government to police the government? And <laughs> I think that the only thing, and this is kind of like the call to arms, right? The only thing that actually polices the government is an ever vigilant watchdog against the state as us as, from us as citizens, right? Mm -hmm. That is the only thing that really can put a check on it. And just to pull from a pretty important document from American history, it says, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, which is talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. And then a couple of sentences later, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invents a device to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future safety. Did some radical write that recently? Was that some new radical idea that some far rightist wrote? I forget where that comes from. Maybe they were they were insurrectionists, no <laughs> doubt. They were if you didn't hear Matthew, that's directly from the direct declaration of independence. This is kind of what we were founded on was the idea that we gotta keep this in check. And I think we brushed on that in the last episode that we're pretty far removed from national uh, having to fight for national freedom. We've been a free state for a long time and we've forgotten what it is to have a king because we have this more mercurial system where this oligarchy is kind of running things. Uh, but at least it, it has the, the curtain in front of the wizard, you know, the, the, the idea that this is democracy and that we are all making these decisions. And it's, it's not, you know, the fact that the people running the show, and all of their cousins, brothers, nephews benefit from this kind of stuff. It's just coincidental. It's really us making these decisions. And those are probably our fault as well. Right. Like, yeah, you know, pay no attention that Hunter Biden got really rich. And so did Joe Biden's brother. And also, but it's not just those two, right? Those are the easiest yeah, examples, of, right? I mean, yeah, all a, of these people. You're talking about Nancy Pelosi. Smart Money says uh, invest in Trump real estate for the next couple uh, years. They're going to do pretty well. Right. You come out yeah. of being the president. You, every president goes into office, they get that $400,000 a year, which is a great salary, I would say. It's a great salary. The average but, American salary is 50000 Right, right. But you add that uh, 4, 400 times eight. Uh, for some reason, their bank accounts are a little heavier than that by the time they get out of there. Mm -hmm. And then you get someone, you get someone who, you know, um, sure, Barack Obama had a million dollar mansion before um, he went into the the office and uh, there's a there's a great book called The Amateur that I recommend that people read because it's a it's a really good uh, it's a good lens to look at Obama through. But you know, okay, so he had a, a nice million dollar mansion going in, but after your president, oh, we're talking about a Martha Vineyard estate. You know, you're talking about Nancy Pelosi, someone who was not wealthy going into Congress, but in her 40 years of leeching off the American people, is now a hundred millionaire. And she is so yeah, indignant that, that public servant did pretty damn well in the private sector. 
Yeah, right. And it's it's just all it's just so absurd. And so at the end of the day, what the steer what the state really fears most is any fundamental threats to its own power. And those come from one of two ways. War and revolution. And never, never waste a good crisis. And our government has not wasted a good crisis. And I'm not saying that there's the, you know, the the man with the long twirly handlebar mustache going <laughs> behind the curtain, right? I don't know that the Rothschilds and all of these people get together at the start of every year and just like, okay, what, what great conspiracies can we unlock against the world? But these are crimes of opportunity, right? And Americans... It's just what the state does, right? Emergencies will create opportunities for the state to impose rules, regulations, and tyranny upon the public that would be openly resisted in times of peace. But you give us a pandemic, and now all of a sudden, maybe we're a little bit more compliant. Okay, you can tell me I don't have a right to go to work today and feed my family. Well, because we have to save people, right? And uh, and all of a sudden, you start creeping in these rules and regulations. And I mean, it's not even it's not even a secret, right? There's a book and sing on my desk. It's called COVID nineteen: The Great Reset, and it is written from a professor in Germany, I believe, and the former chair of the World Economic Forum. Right? We are talking about two huge state actors saying that COVID nineteen is a perfect example or the perfect opportunity to reset global capitalism all in the, you know, the long-term goal of combating climate change, but it's out there. Like they, they publish books about it. And yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, uh, how long had we had a plan? We we've been in the middle East before uh, we found it to be a fruitless exercise to be over there during George Bush senior. And we brought all those troops back. Um, uh, but there's still always been a military plan. I mean, these, the, there's been generals who've been quoted as saying, yeah, we plan to go into Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. You know, they have a, this list of like seven countries that they really want to start wars in. 9-11 happens. We're attacked by what turns out to be Saudi agents. Um, maybe that's not fair to say, but from Saudi Arabia, these, these terrorist agents came through, um, bombed some buildings in the U.S., and we go into seven countries that are not called Saudi Arabia to go dispose dictators and kill brown children. And it, mm-hmm. now we pretty much even the people on the far right that voted for Bush twice will go, yeah, we shouldn't have been in those wars. Those wars messed up a lot of things. It was a terrible idea. It's been a suck on tax money. We lost a lot of American young men and women uh, that got killed over there senselessly. Doom them to lives of you know suffering from the trauma. Mm-hmm. And we lost a hell of a lot fighting more, these wars. Lost a lot, hell of a lot more humans in general. A lot of women and children from these countries who had no vested interest in this probably didn't even vote in the leader that's there. And now they have American troops marching on their land, uh, killing their fathers, brothers, and and uh, drone bombing bombing their hospitals and weddings. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you get to the what is it? Stanley McChrystal gave us the uh, the math of insurgency. Mm-hmm. If I have ten, if I have ten insurgents and kill two, I don't have eight. I have eighteen. You know, because for every person that was on the fence um, of this insurgency, when I kill their father, five more rallied to the cause. And I think that uh, just to kind of wrap this up because we are running out of time, I think we maybe went a little bit longer, but that's okay, right? We we like to ramble. Um, <laughs> that's why we're doing this, but. I think just to put a neat little bow on it, we are not the state. The state is not us. The state has its own agenda. And what the state fears...
is an educated class of citizens because critical thinking individuals are extremely difficult to control. Absolutely. And we got to continue that fight, guys. This is something you have one lifetime to fight against the state. The state's got a lot longer than that. It's a creeping monster and it's going to keep moving forward. Well, right that's it for us. Matthew, anything to add? No, I think we're good. Go ahead and hit that like button. Please share, subscribe. Thank you guys very much for listening. And we will be back next week with a very special friend to talk about some COVID economics. Until then, peace. Peace.